Well, good morning and welcome to uh, Christ Community, our Leeward campus. And uh, my name is Tom. We're delighted you are here this morning. This summer, I had the privilege of meeting a remarkable family. They are the Stormans family, and uh, they live in Olympia, Washington. For four generations, the Stormans have run a family business um, and done it according to their consistent Christian beliefs. They own and run Ralph's and Bayview Thriftway and have pharmacies as a part of their business. As business folks, they have stocked over the years various different kinds of birth control products for their customers. But when abortifacient drugs came out, like the morning after pill, the Stormans faced a crisis of conscience. As Christians, they believe drugs like the morning after pill take innocent human life, which is a morally rep reprehensive act. So in good conscience, the Stormans drew a line in the sand. They decided not to stock or sell abortifacient drugs. Stormans had a tough choice to make, and they made it. Now, even though there were 30 other pharmacies in the area, within around five miles that stocked the morning-after pill, regulatory officials of our government stepped in and ordered the Stormans to stock and sell abort-efficient drugs. What would they do? Would they accommodate and sell the morning-after pill? Would they close the pharmacies or would they file a lawsuit? Stormans prayerfully decided on a very costly lawsuit. And immediately the press demonized them, protesters harassed their customers, hate mail and threats came almost every day. Revenues declined and they had to lay off their employees or several of them. Initially, a federal court ruled in favor of the Stormans and allowed them to stay in business. This year, the Ninth Court, Circuit Court of Appeals ruled against them. And this summer, the U.S. Supreme Court refused to hear the case. Now, in a nation birthed out of the womb of religious freedom, this kind of sanctioned government coercion against the freedom of individual religious conscience would have been unconscionable a few years ago. Yes, as singer Bob Dylan said many years ago, the times are a-changing. And as people of faith, the freedom to live out our faith without recrimination, without hostility, without persecution is eroding. Cherished religious belief and personal conscience are increasingly on a collision course with cultural conformity and, yes, government coercion. Both people of faith and non-faith look at our nation and see a darkening storm on the horizon. We observe the presidential political theater, the growing polarization in our culture, the incivility, the violence, the mistrust on our streets, and yes, the global economic shakiness. Many are saying across faith views and non-faith views that our social cohesion as a nation seems to be unraveling. And much of life seems to be spinning out of control. It's not surprising that mental health care professionals say that 
anxiety, fearful anxiety, is the common cold of our time. So how are we to live in these anxious times when so much of life seems so out of control? Yes, where there is a greater and greater likelihood that our personal conscience will collide head-on with oppressive cultural conformity and, yes, government coercion. How do we live without control without losing our soul? That is a seminal question for all of us. And yet some 2,600 years ago, a devout Jewish teenager faced a head-on collision with cultural conformity and government coercion. Yes, Daniel faced a crisis of conscience. And the question is, how did he respond? If you brought a Bible with you this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Daniel chapter 1. Last week, we were introduced to the historical backdrop of this amazing, amazing Hebrew book. God's covenant people, as you remember, if you were here, for them, the times were changing big time. Their once predictably safe world had been turned upside down, and the world was spinning out of control. The powerful nation of Babylon, like a lion, had swept down and destroyed Jerusalem, one of the most horrendous besieges in human history. Death and destruction smelled like flowers on the streets. The survivors, those who made it, now faced a 600-mile death march from Jerusalem to Babylon. They arrived in Babylon powerless in a strange and hostile culture ruled by a ruthless dictator. This was their life in exile. So as Daniel chapter 1 opens, the literary spotlight shines brilliantly on four young Jewish teenagers, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They are among the group of the survivors past the death march who arrive in Babylon and are now part of King Nebuchadnezzar's global ambitions and his self-glory. Let's move from the 21st century to walk back to the 6th century BC. Let's imagine ourselves walking on the streets of Babylon, one of the greatest wonders of the ancient world, its beauty and majesty, and all on those dusty streets, the language they encounter, the sights, the sounds, the smells are all brand new to them. Each morning, these young teenagers awoke, a dark cloud of grief greeted them. It wasn't the evening nightmare that was the worst. It was the day nightmare. They missed their families, many who had been slaughtered in front of their eyes. They missed their homeland. They had different names given to them. They were in a strange school, learning to write and speak a new language. They were reading all kinds of idolatrous and unseemly literature. They were exposed to occultic practices. And can you imagine as a teenager, their sexual desires, their longings for a family and sons and daughters one day have been dashed forever through emasculation. Everything is turned upside down and all of life is spinning out of control. Of course, there is one person who thinks he's in control. He is the king on the geopolitical hill of the 6th century BC. His name is King Nebuchadnezzar. 
Yet as we learned last week, as we enter into the story, we see the subtle sovereign fingerprints of the one true king who's really in charge. The one true God who is moving the pieces on the chessboard of human history. Now as chapter 1 continues, we notice that Daniel faces a crisis of personal conscience. And for the thoughtful reader of the text and culture, that should not be surprising. Because whether we live in the 6th century BC or the 21st century AD, a defining characteristic of life in exile is a crisis or crises of personal conscience. So here in verses 8 through 21, we discover both a timely and timeless understanding of how to respond in a moment of crisis. Three timeless truths in which the text flows. First, Daniel will say, draw your line. Determine where your line is. And then he will say, pursue a wise and yes, wisdom approach. And third, trust the outcome to God. So determine your line, pursue a wise approach, and trust the outcome to God. So let's jump into the story. Look at me at verse 8. But notice, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Now, it's important to grasp that Daniel draws the line in the cultural sand. And the question for the thoughtful reader is, why here, why now? When you think of all that Daniel had faced being christened with an idolatrous, idolatrous name, seeing so much blatant sexual immorality, studying pagan literature and occultic practices, what was it about the food and the wine on the training table of the king that put Daniel over the edge? We really don't know. Some factors, perhaps, is the idea, as a Jewish boy, of kosher food. But we know wine was always kosher, so we're not sure why it's that. We also know from Babylonian literature this time that much of the food on the training table was offered to idols. So maybe some of the food and wine was offered to idols, which would have been very bad for Daniel. Also, perhaps, having every kind of identity of his life stripped from him, Perhaps there was a sense that what he ate was one last vestige of his true identity. We're just not sure. But we are sure that Daniel did not make this decision impulsively or without great thought. Hebrew scholars wrestle with this very important verb. In fact, when it says in the translation that was read, when Daniel resolved himself, when you look at other English translations, you see how Hebrew scholars wrestle with this verb. There are many ways to translate it. It's not only important in our story this morning, it is the fulcrum upon which the entire story of Daniel pivots, this verb. So what does it mean? What does it imply? Some texts translate the Hebrew into English as determined. Others will translate it, make up his mind. Or others will interpret this from Hebrew to English, purposed in his heart. Now, I want to suggest that a survey of this particular usage helps us when we look at the prophet Haggai. In Haggai chapter 1, 
we see this very same verb translated, quote, to consider from this day onward. And I think that's what Daniel 1 is saying. Daniel is saying, as he writes this later, I have made up my mind, I made it up from this day onward not to eat the king's food or drink his wine. So my hunch, or I would say my strong hunch, is that initially, the text tells us, Daniel had been eating the king's training table for a while. But as he prayed about it and thought about it, he decided that from this point on, he could not do it anymore. What is really clear in the text is that it is not done impulsively or unadvisedly or without prayer. And what is also clear in the text, what Daniel wants us to know, is that God is at work here. Notice verses 9 and 10. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who, you are, who are your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king? Now it's important to grasp that while Daniel is facing a crisis, a personal crisis of conscience, his immediate boss is facing a crisis of his own. Not only is he facing the loss of his job, more importantly, as he alludes to Daniel in the text, he's facing the loss of his head. Not a pretty picture. So what we see going on here is Daniel's immediate boss is willing to engage him in the most respectful conversation. Clearly, there is a lot going on under the surface. What we notice is Daniel will insert an unusual word to describe his relationship with his boss. Not just the broad word favor, but this Hebrew word compassion comes from an etymology of the womb. It is deeply tied to a familial love, not just a friendship love. Daniel is saying, my boss saw me as his very own son. That didn't happen overnight. It was cultivated for a while. That's why the text reminds me, at least, and I think it's true very strongly, that Daniel didn't draw the line day one in Babylon. But he clearly draws the line. And Daniel's boss is reminding Daniel, hey, Daniel, you're drawing the line here, and I know that's a big deal to you, but it's a big deal to me too. Because when you draw the line of personal conscience, it not only affects you, it affects others. That's why drawing a line in the cultural sand is a serious thing. It must be taken advisedly and with great care. See, like Daniel, we too are living in exile, are we not? For Daniel knew, and we'll see this later in the book, Jerusalem was not his ultimate home, the new Jerusalem was. And we are not yet home either. In this already not yet moment of human history between, between Jesus' first and second coming, we live in exile. We are exiles. This is why the Apostle Peter in the first century writes his letter to Christians around the Roman Empire and he addresses them how? As exiles, as strangers living in a strange land. And what is really true is that life in exile, whether it's the first century, 
the 6th century BC or the 21st century requires courageous faith. As a good citizen of our nation and as a devout Christian, after much prayer and thought, a calm and courageous Rosa Parks drew a line in the segregational cultural sand. On December 1st, 1955, Rosa Parks refused to surrender her seat to a white passenger on a public bus in Montgomery, Alabama. And the consequences for her were severe. She was arrested. But her courageous faith and action against injustice, against evil, was a catalyst of a movement across our country. One of my favorite movies of all time, it's always hard to have the top five, but one of my favorite of all times is Chariots of Fire. If you've not seen it, I know it's an old movie now, you gotta see it. <laughs> but it's the story of Eric Little, the Scotsman who is an Olympic runner. And the story is because of his Christian faith and conscience, personal conscience, he drew the line as a Christian for him to run on Sunday. And he said, I'm not going to run on Sunday in the Olympic race. See, as exiles, each one of us needs to consider when and where we draw the line. Where our personal conscience collides with cultural conformity or injustice or government coercion. So as a Christian, and particularly if you're younger here today as a student, now is the time to think about this. You may need to draw a line regarding a party you are invited to or a salacious movie you are invited to watch or to partake in underage drinking or to enter a situation that may compromise your moral purity. Adults in your job, you may face the pressure of fudging quarterly sales figures or engaging in some unethical practice. Where will you draw the line? How do you know when and where to draw the line? See, drawing the line of personal conscience is not the same for all Christians. Sometimes we draw too many lines. Sometimes we don't draw a line when we need to. In Romans chapter 14, the Apostle Paul reminds the exiled Christians in Rome in the first century that there are weak consciences and strong consciences. And he says to the weak conscience who draws too many lines, you need to grow up in Christ and have greater maturity. To the strong conscience, he says you need to be sensitive to the weaker conscience and help them grow without condemnation. Hear me carefully. God calls us to engage our culture. But God does not call us nor is it wise to die, die on every hill. God may want you in some cases to develop a stronger conscience. However, there are three kinds of personal conscience categories that I think are helpful in helping you with your children or students or your life to draw a line. Let me give those to you. The first conscience category is something where you may say, I may not like this, but I can live with it. 
The second conscience category is something where you say in your heart, I may really disagree with this, but I won't fight it. The third conscience category is something where you say, this is so wrong, so evil, I have to take a stand against it. The when and where we draw the line requires prayerful wisdom. And that's where Daniel goes in the story. Determine where your line is. Secondly, pursue a wise approach. Notice the the threads of winsomeness and wisdom in this story. Verses 11 through 15. Daniel's wisdom as a teenager, if you're younger, is absolutely amazing. His courage is stunning. And his winsomeness is off the charts. Daniel respectfully and wisely responds to his boss's legitimate concerns. And notice there is not a hint, there's not a whiff of arrogance or holier-than-thou self-righteousness. Daniel doesn't act like a disrespectful jerk. He simply and humbly, persuasively proposes a 10-day dietary test, water and vegetables. And the proof will be in the pudding, so to speak. Don't you just love how Daniel changes the conversation with his boss from a win-lose perspective to a win-win? Daniel's boss has nothing to lose, neither his job nor his head. In fact, this test is going to help his boss look good. Daniel and his friends have everything to gain. See, Daniel not only has confidence in his plan, it's well thought out. We must not miss, ultimately, in the text, he has his confidence in God. He's locked in on God. And when Daniel draws a line in the sand, do not miss this. The outcome is very unknown at that point, and it's a very fearful moment for Daniel. But notice Daniel is not alone here. He's not only with his God, he's with his closest friends. I remember as a kid hearing a little song, dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone. And sometimes God will have you stand alone. But it's always much wiser and more powerful when you stand together with your close friends and people who share your mission. Notice there's Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah all together on the line. When we draw a line, We need to take a wise and winsome approach. And we need other support. That's why a local church community is so vital for us. That's why if you're a teen or you're younger or you're a student, a vital youth group is essential to support you. See, in exile, Lone Ranger Christianity is deadly. Lone Ranger Christians never do well in exile. When you face a crisis of conscience, Daniel says, determine where your line is. Secondly, pursue a wise approach and notice where this text builds. And that is, trust God with the outcome. Ten days pass by. (laughs) What were Daniel and his friends thinking and praying about? Under the scrutiny of their boss. But they 
are looking good in the neighborhood. Look at me at verse 15. At the end of 10 days, it was seen, notice the visuals, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh. That means they had a six pack. I'm not talking about beer. <laughs> they had, the idea of fatter is not as we think of it in the Hebrew text, it is muscular, lean, and they are specimens. But they are not only physical specimens that you cannot hide. Notice where the text takes them. The boss says, seeing is believing. Guys, you're on. And Daniel, writing this later, says, it wasn't just God's favor in our physicality. God gave us great wisdom. And notice how Daniel doesn't claim his own brilliance. Do you see his humility? He says as he writes this in respectful third person, verse 17, God gave them. Don't you love that? God gave them. Learning and skill in notice all literature. All literature. And wisdom. And Daniel even had understanding in visions and dreams. After three years of rigorous training, they have their doctoral exam before King Neb. It's an oral exam. That's the picture. And Neb is just blown away at these young men. There's Daniel, there's Hananiah, there's Mishael, and there's Azariah, and they are in the top of their class. They are head and shoulders above everyone else in their examination. But not only that, Neb says, <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar, Neb says, they are better. These are teenagers, 18, 19, maybe 20 now, maybe 21 who are more brilliant and more wise than his most seasoned advisors of years and years and years. See, Daniel had been compelled to draw a line in the sand. He had pursued a wise and winsome approach with his boss. And he had trusted the outcome to God. And what a stunning outcome of favor and influence we have in the story. But we need to ask another question, don't we? Why is it that God did not specifically intervene in ways like this earlier in Daniel's young life? Surely on the death march to Babylon with the chains clinging and tearing his flesh, Daniel must have cried out to God, God, where are you? Where are you? What are you doing? Why do I have to endure such humiliation and deprivation and so many shattered dreams? A young Daniel clearly did not have any answers to those deep questions. All Daniel could do is to seek God's intimate presence with him, to trust his promises and recognize the most foundational truth of the universe, that God is the one in control and not me. The 19th century philosopher, if you have not encountered him, I encourage you to read him, Soren Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard said many brilliant things, but this is one of his best. He said, we live our lives forward, but we understand them backwards. In the rearview mirror of our lives, as we get older, we can get glimpses of what God has been doing in our lives all along. It takes a lifetime to connect the dots. 
And that is why I believe an elderly Daniel with gray hair and a flowing beard has tears pouring down his eyes as he pens this book in praise to God. He looks through the rearview mirror of his life and he pens these inspired words in verse 21. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. A praiseful Daniel reminds himself and his readers that he was part of a plan much, much bigger than himself. Here is a young teenager once beaten and bruised, emasculated, humiliated, put in shackles, sent to Babylon. He will become the right-hand advisor of the most powerful kings for over 60 years. Wow. And the Apostle Paul, centuries later, pen these words to the followers of Jesus living in a hostile culture of Rome. And he says, and we know all things work together for the good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Did, Rabbi, did the Apostle Paul have Daniel's story in mind? Perhaps. I think so. See, we never know the short-term outcome of a crisis of personal conscience. We don't know it. The New Testament book of Hebrews reminds us that faithful servants of God, like Daniel, who served kings, there are other faithful servants, equally faithful, who are sawn in two by kings. The outcome of obedience and faith is not in our hands. It is in God's good hands. It is in Jesus' nail-scarred loving hands. And the Hebrew writer reminds us that faith looks to a long-term horizon. Like Daniel, we are not home yet. And one day we will be no longer living in exile. When we look at church history and the present where many of our persecuted brothers and sisters around the globe are facing incredible coercion. Our historical moment in our country may not be pleasant, but it's not unusual. Now, I'm a pastor and not a prophet. But the clouds on the horizon tell me that the days ahead in our nation, we may well face greater crises of conscience. This week we saw an incredible hurricane hit the East Coast. Forecasters looked out ahead in the ocean and saw a massive storm building. We're not sure where it's going to hit or if it's going to hit landfall. God knows but there's a storm building. So how do we begin to live a faithful life in our moment in history, in our nation? When we face a crisis of conscience, Daniel reminds us, determine where your line is, pursue a wise approach, and trust God with the outcome. Let me ask you two questions of reflection I'm asking myself this week. First, how are you preparing now See, how you handle a crisis of conscience reveals what is already true of you. Christian character and conviction is not forged in a crisis. It's revealed in a crisis. So are the decisions you are making today, the priorities you are establishing in your life, suggest you are anchoring your life to the rock of ages or are you accommodating to the shifting sands of culture? At school, work, at home, does your life reveal you are living before an audience of one? 
or an audience of many? Are you seeking the approval of God or the crowd? Crisis of conscience can come in obscure spaces or visible places. It can come from peer pressure at school, at work, family members. A crisis of conscience can also come not only from government coercion, it can come from ecclesial and religious coercion and accommodation. When prohibited by religious authorities in the first century from sharing the gospel, Peter and John respond in Acts chapter 4, verse 19 through 20 with these words. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must be judged. For we cannot stop speaking of what we have seen and heard. Peter and John articulate the principle of supremacy of conscience over even religious institutions and authorities. One of my great friends, one of the finest pastors in the United States in my mind is Pastor John Yates. Served a remarkable congregation for, I think, 35 or 40 years, the Falls Church in Washington, D.C. John and his congregation found themselves and their parish facing a hate-filled, hostile denominational hierarchy. one that has left historical Christian orthodoxy and embraced false doctrine. Not willing to conform to this deception, Falls Church voted to leave their denomination. Yet after years of costly litigation, the Falls Church lost all their assets, millions of dollars, including their church building, and were literally forced out in the streets. Falls Church is thriving in temporary facilities. 3,000 members strong. Life in exile is a time for courage and not fear. It's a time for hope. A time for great opportunity to embrace the gospel, to live the gospel, to proclaim the gospel, and to deepen our intimacy with Jesus moment by moment, day after day. It was the insightful 20th century writer A.W. Tozer who put it this way. I'm going to say this twice because it is so brilliant what he wrote. He said, a scared world needs a fearless church. A scared world needs a fearless church. Are you preparing now for a crisis of conscience that may come later? Secondly, are you keeping the long view in mind? Life in exile accentuates our longing for our true home. Jesus drew the line in the sand as he set his face toward Jerusalem. He laid down his life, his shedding his innocent blood as an atoning sacrifice for you and me. And as he gathered his disciples around him, he said, I'm going to go away. I'm going to come again. I'm going to go away. I'm going to prepare a place for you. That place is the new heavens and new earth. And one day Jesus will return. The present broken and sin-ravaged world is not our ultimate home. One day this world will be made new. And that is the home our hearts so long for. It was the home German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer longed for. One of the greatest heroes of the 20th century, in my opinion. Brilliant, humble, who challenged an accommodating church of Germany in their apostasy. Who out of great angst drew a line in the sand to oppose Adolf Hitler and Nazi tyranny. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was arrested and imprisoned. And in the gray dawn of an April day in 1945 in the concentration camp of Flossenburg, 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, was stripped naked and executed. Bonhoeffer's last words to a fellow prisoner were these words. This is the end, but for me, the beginning of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story of Daniel and for the Daniels of the past and present who in devotion to you display courageous faith. May we with hopefulness and joy and confidence that you hold the future in your hand, may we be a faithful people. May we be a fruitful people. God, grant to us, individually and as a church, your favor. Amen.